All right, so last week we talked about the first seven verses of Philemon. We're not going to take any time to go ahead and review that. If there's something that you want to revisit from the first seven verses, feel free to do so. That's no problem at all. But I want to go ahead and jump into verse 8. And I want to read the, the last 17 or 18 verses in basically four or five subsections. We'll divide it up into two or three verses uh, at a time. Let's start in verse 8. He says, therefore, this is after he's talked about the joy and love. He says, therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, the aged, and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So the two words that I kind of emphasized in, in my inflection are those two verbs, in the New King James, where he says, I could command you, but rather I'm going to appeal to you. And those, one is a strong word, one is a more passive word. One is a do this or else, the other is can I please appeal to you uh, out of your love, out of your devotion, out of your joy, and we'll talk about that today. Paul, uh, here in this text, in the New American Standard, it uses the term enough confidence. He says, I might be very bold. He says, I might through enough confidence. But he saw himself as one who was dealing with a tough subject. And I think it was Bruce last week that talked about, think about what this would be like when not only from, from all three perspectives. There's three major characters uh, out of the five or six in the book of Philemon. You have Paul, the writer, you have Philemon, the recipient, and you have Onesimus, who's kind of the subject of the whole letter, especially of the last uh, three-fifths of the letter. And think about what it would be like if you were Onesimus and liked the one who was carrying your letter, or Paul's letter, back to Philemon. And one of the things that he says after his introductory remarks, because the first seven verses are kind of introductory, not superfluous, but they're introductory verses, is he says, now I want you to know I could command you on this, but I'm trying to appeal to you. Um, and he says, I have enough boldness that I need to approach you about this particular subject. And the reason for doing so is for love's sake. And really, when you stop and think about it, everything we do, all that we engage in is for the sake of love. It should be, at least, that every motivating factor of who we are, what we are, what we do is to be love. What chapter, and so we'll throw a couple of soft pitches here uh, to get us started, but what chapter and New Testament book really talks about that if you don't have love, you, you ain't got much? I heard a couple different people say 1 Corinthians 13. That's really the... Uh, now, of course, the context there was the spiritual gifts that chapters 12, 13, and 14 are all talking about. But chapter 13 is really saying if you don't have love as the motivating factor for the way that you talk, for the way that you t treat others then it's like a, a noisy gong, some versions say. It's just a noise out there. Um, the other thing that I thought was kind of interesting in, in looking at this word appeal is that Paul's seeking to take Philemon and appeal to him 
instead of commanding him to do what is right. Is there, and I didn't put this up on the screen, and I, and I don't have an application for this, but let me just start out. Uh, is there a lesson for us in how we might apply this to others? And I see heads shaking yes, which is, which is good. Sometimes we have to command, and sometimes elders have the responsibility of saying, you know what, that is not right. You cannot do that. You cannot act that way. You've got to change. But sometimes elders, preachers, uh, teachers of Bible classes, brethren who love one another, sometimes we try to avoid that when it's a matter where we can appeal to someone, right? And say, well, let's, let's think about this. And there is a, uh, I was recently talking to someone, I forget who it was now, um, it wouldn't matter anyway, but about someone else, a member of this church who has a real gift, and he or she shall remain nameless, but this person has a real gift for being able to sometimes say difficult things, but appeal to you in a way that you say, yeah, I think I, I, think I can make that change. I think I can uh, make that alteration in my life. And you may know who I'm talking about. If you do, great. If you don't, uh, that's fine too. But I thought that was kind of interesting. Some people have a gift for going back to Colossians 4, using speech seasoned with grace where they're able to share that message. And then the other thing here, and then we'll open it up for comments here, is what I would call the rationale for asking this way. Why does Paul seek to appeal as opposed to command? And there are three things that he points out in verse uh, 9. He says, for love's sake, he says, I rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul, being aged, and now also being a prisoner of Jesus Christ. So I counted three things, and we talked about the list that Paul likes to make, or at least the, the way that we can view this. Personality of Paul, his age, and the fact that he is a prisoner of Christ. And we'll talk about that concept of prisoner uh, a couple of times in our study together today, that that may have a couple of different meanings to it. Comments on either the first seven verses, you're welcome to go back to what we did last week, or what we've talked about thus far uh, today. Uh, Brother Bruce here in, in front, Brother Michael. And then we'll go ahead and proceed to verse 10 here in just a second. I think the Bible's replete with giving us examples of how to talk to people. Jesus, even in Revelation 2 and 3, as he addressed the churches, with exception of one, Mm -hmm. He started out by telling them what good things they were doing and what they were known for. And he eased into uh, sort of uh, telling them what they needed to correct. And Paul does the same here, and he does the same elsewhere. We need to compliment people for what they're doing uh, before we get into, sometimes, uh, before we get into the meat of the matter. Like not that. always, not always. As you said, sometimes we need to command them. But Paul was good uh, in his letters to Thessalonians, to Corinthians, and others uh, for telling them good things. And that's the tact we should use in addressing the world and in addressing each other, is that it shouldn't be a berate of beratement. Mm -hmm. Uh, of someone because of their sins. He says it ought to be done out of love. He could have kept Onesimus there in Rome. Absolutely. Him, and not sent him back. But things have changed. 
And Paul, as a prisoner of Christ, also has this mind of Christ, which Christ showed in the way he rebuked people as well. Uh, even the young rich man whom he mm -hmm. uh, told to uh, give all of his possessions and go away, the, the, the scripture says he loved this, this young ruler. Yeah. Uh, so, as I said, the New Testament and the Old Testament is replete of God's instructions to us by example. And we should uh, follow that example. And follow that. Yeah. Very good. Thank you, Brother Bruce. He used a word that I hadn't thought of, but that word was tact. Um, there's a tactful way of approaching someone and a not-so-tactful way of approaching someone, right? So, yeah. Very, very good. Um, all right, let's go ahead to verses 10 through 14. I have two slides on this particular section because it's a little longer. Um, but let's start in verse 10. I appeal, there it is again. I appeal to you, verse 10, for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, which is what Bruce had just kind of talked about, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my change for the gospel, but without your consent, again, that's what Bruce was talking about just a second or so ago, I wanted to do nothing that your good deed might not be compulsion by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. So a lot of good stuff there. First and foremost, uh, I like the phrase that he uses when he talks about, he says, my son Onesimus. Uh, this isn't the only time that Paul refers to uh, someone as a son or a son in the faith. The most famous instance or the one that we're more familiar with is, of course, Timothy, where he talks about his son in the faith. He says, I have begotten him in bonds or begotten him in imprisonment. So this again, is one of those places where, and the reason we're talking about uh, Colossians, and the reason we're talking about Philippians, and the reason we're talking about Philemon, all in the course of a 13-week period, is because of where Paul is writing from, and the perspective from which he's approaching people. Um, so there's a lot of different ways of looking at the, well, not a lot of different ways, but there's a couple of different ways of looking at the phrase in verse 11, you were unprofitable, but now you are profitable. Uh, and of course, that's ripe with application for us. You know, the idea that we went from being unprofitable to being profitable. We went from being not a people to a people of God. So there's a lot of different ways you can look at that transition from the place where we are without hope to now we are a people with hope. But... I never quite thought about it this way until earlier last week I was reading through this and came across this concept that when he was a runaway slave, Onesimus was truly useless or unprofitable to Philemon. So, and, and not to be cold or callous, but even in our own you know, last 200 years of American history, we understand that when slavery was legal, slaves were considered property. And that was one of the big debates of the, of the, the early, mid-1800s as to, is, are you a person or are you property? Now, granted, the practice of slavery seems to be a little bit or remarkably different in the first century as compared to 19th century uh, uh, Western world, right? 
uh, but the idea is, is I, you are my property. You are bonded to me. You are a bond servant. And we use that term a lot of times when we talk about a spiritual nature. So when he ran away, he's no longer profitable. He's no longer be, being able to use him as an asset. He's no longer able to benefit from him. But uh, is that a place for us to apply to us? Because I just asked the question, are we unprofitable at certain points in our lives? And the answer is absolutely yes. When it comes to God's service, when we are not doing what God asks us to do, we are unprofitable. We are not being, we are not using ourselves, not allowing God to use us for all the purposes that we would otherwise be engaged in or be, in, uh, be impacted by. Um, the other thing, just kind of as an application, just imagine thing, teaching of the gospel by Paul to Onismus and the lessons for us today. Um, again, I was talking with someone just a couple of days ago about this concept. Uh, I think it was Wednesday I was talking about this, that sometimes the people that or the situations that we find ourselves in are not apt for teaching. But Paul was a person that says, I don't care what position I'm in. I don't care where I am. I'm going to use that as an opportunity to teach someone the truth. And that's powerful. That every opportunity he had, he says, I'm going to teach. I don't care if I'm in prison. That's what he says in Philippians chapter 1. He says, if I'm living, I'm teaching. If I'm dying, I'm rejoicing. He says, I'm, I'm good to go with whatever the case may be. Reminds me of a, of a, of a man. Some of you may know him. Uh, friend, uh, distant friend. Uh, I don't know him real, real well, but a member of the church who was just told two weeks ago in Indiana that uh, he has weeks or months to live. And he went from being sick and not dire straits to you're going to die in a matter of months or if not weeks in a course of a week. And he posted a couple of days ago on social media. He says, you know, I'm fine with that. And I told the doctors I'm okay with the idea of dying because I'm comfortable with that. If we can be at that point where if someone, if doctor tells you you've got six weeks left to live and you're like, yeah, there might be some things you want to uh, arrange, um, you know, financially and talk to some people and things like that. But if you can be like, you know what, that, that's okay. I'm all right with that. That's a good attitude as a Christian to have. That you're, you're at a place where you can be comfortable with that. Uh, last thing here, and then we'll uh, open it up for comments here, is uh, Paul says that Onesimus may have been useless to you during this present time, but he was helpful to him. And Onesimus, was he an older saint? Uh, I'm not talking about old in terms of years. But in terms of his maturity as a Christian, and the answer is probably not. He's probably a relatively new Christian, which tells me that we need to never discount young Christians. That older Christians are important who've been in service for 30, 40, 50 years. Someone who's been a Christian for maybe six months, they're valuable as well, right? Any thoughts on this before we go to verses 12 through 14? All right, let's go ahead and transition to verse 12. 
he says, I have sent him back to you. The New American Standard says, I'm sending him back to you in person. So it's a more emphatic way of saying, he's coming back to you. And this goes back to the point that Brother Bruce made last week. The idea of, think about how awkward this could have been, and probably was for Philemon, uh, being a little bit nervous as, um, for Onesimus as to how his master was going to react to him. Um, here's something that, again, I hadn't really thought of until just a few days ago. Maybe Onesimus, still young in the faith, had learned enough about the gospel that he was a little more willing to return. What does Colossians 4 verse 1 say? And you can cheat by looking at it. But we talked about that just uh, two weeks ago. What's Colossians 4 1 say about masters? I'll give you a hint. says that masters are to treat their subordinates fairly, I'm paraphrasing, realizing that they too have a, a greater master, capital M, in, in heaven. So maybe he had learned that. We know that there are some striking parallels between Colossians and Philemon, as much as there is between Colossians and Ephesians, which we referenced in our study of Colossians 3 and 4. But I thought that that was kind of interesting here. And then he uses the phrase, he says, my own heart. What a, what a beautiful phrase he says. I, it's as if my own heart's coming back to you. It's like a, a father with his children or a mother with their children. It's my own heart. Uh, verse 13 where we read here, uh, we read that Onesimus was already so helpful to Paul, so advantageous to Paul that he wanted to keep him to provide for his own assistance. But uh, rather than doing that, Paul says, I want to do what's right. I want to set a good example. I want to show what is, is good. And also, there are some civil laws that were likely in place at this point that required, in fact, again, going back to 19th century America, there were laws in place especially in 1862-63, that if a slave ran away, you were uh, compelled to send him back. And, of course, those that didn't do that risked themselves being punished. Uh, Verse 14, along that line, uh, is where he continues with this thought, is that the civil law still needed to be obeyed. But Paul, if you look at Paul's face, because you can kind of see his face here, it's a face of hope for grace from Philemon. He's saying, I hope that when I send him back to you, when I send Onesimus back, that your approach, that your response is one that is rooted in love. Uh, anything else uh, on the first 14 verses of uh, Brother Brian here? Uh, and then we'll move on to verse 15. Just thinking about the end of verse 14 there, where he talks about the difference between uh, compulsion and voluntary. And that made me think back to what you had initially mentioned in uh, verses verses 8 and 9, the difference between appealing to somebody and commanding them. And if you take that direct command approach, you may get their obedience. But what's going to be the long-term impact of that relationship? Is he just taking it back as a favor to Paul? But is he really going to develop the kind of relationship between Philemon and Onesimus that Paul desires, whereas where he says, "Listen, I, I want this to be, I want this to be voluntary. I want you to be as excited about this as I am." 
now they can hopefully have the brother-to-brother relationship that they were meant to have in Christ. Absolutely. Very good. Excellent thought. Others? All right. Uh, Verse 15. Let's read 15 through 17. And I know that we're kind of breaking different phrases here and sentences, and that may be a little bit frustrating, but I wanted to divide them up uh, as, as in pieces as possible. For perhaps, this is an interesting verse. I, I thought about this verse uh, quite a bit on Thursday uh, as I was reading this. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose or for this, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me, or receive him as me. A lot of good stuff in here. Um... for this reason, uh, yeah, verse 15, for this purpose or for this reason uh, that you might receive him forever. Incidentally, that word forever is the same word as eternal in some versions or in the language. Think about that. Onesimus went from being a useful person to Philemon for the course of X number of years, a limited period of time, either until he was freed uh, or until he died, to now his value is everlasting. It is eternal. So Paul here, it seems to me, is clearly making a transition from looking at him as a physical object, a commodity, property, or even a human being, to looking at him now as a brother in Christ. And we talked about how that word brother is used more in Philemon. It's used four different times in Philemon, which is a lot for just 25 verses. Um, And the other thing I I thought about here is he's losing a slave, but he's gaining a brother. And that's more important, is that relationship. Uh, verse, in fact, verse 16 talks about being more than a slave, uh, and that's us too. And I, I put up there, remember that brothers used four times in Philemon's, to Paul, but especially to Philemon. So Paul's saying, he's important to me. He's a brother to me. I've taught him. I, bat- I, I Presumably, he baptized him or was very instrumental in teaching him the importance of being baptized. Um, but he's now a brother to me. He's now our brother to you as well. And then I like the New American Standard in verse 17 where it says, if you regard me, you know, if someone has high regard for you, the idea of respect for you, it says, if you regard me, verse 17, if you count me as a partner, I like, actually I like the New King James books, I like the word partner. I love the idea of partnering um, with someone. He says, receive him as me, receive him as you would me. Um, in fact, that word partner is used similarly in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 23. If you want to go and jot that down and look at that verse at some point. But that partnership is part of the fellowship, part of the communion we talked about last week, all of which go well together. 
I hope I'm looking at verse 15 correctly. Um, um, I, I don't want to say too much. One, I want to see if you have thoughts, but two, I'm afraid I might get it wrong. Uh, but I, I really did think about verse 15 quite a bit, and I, and I won't tell you where my mind went yet. But are there thoughts about verse 15 where he says, perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose? What's he saying there? God's providence. Okay. So if John says it, I'll say it too. That's what I was thinking Thursday. I was sitting there Thursday. And I was like, I never noticed that passage before. At least it, it struck me. And that seems to me the idea of God providing, which is what providence is. Uh, it took me probably 30 some years of life before I realized that the word providence has the word provide in it. It took a long time. And then someone pointed it out to me probably, I don't know, five or six years ago. And I thought, Wow, because, and, I, and I'll share this with you as well, I was always reluctant to talk about providence because there is some mystery to providence. And you don't, we don't want to just say, well, that's providence, that's providence, that's providence, because there are people in the world who say that, and it's like, I'm not sure that that's exactly what is meant by that term. Um, but, you know, you have uh, the famous example of Esther, as we talked about eight months ago, coming to the throne perhaps for this reason or for this time. Uh, and the same thing here, I think that's, that's where my mind went as well. Other thoughts on verse 15 or on the, on the verses 16 and 17 as well, but I appreciate someone at least thinking the same way I did. It makes me feel a little better. All right, uh, let's go ahead to verses 18 through 20 as we uh, approach our last 12 minutes here together. Uh, verse 18, if, but, starts with but, if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. So talk about boldness. That's a bold statement, at least to me. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Um, all right, let's talk about this for a, a second or two. First, we have the selflessness of Paul. Uh, if I'm reading verse 18 correctly, he's saying, if there is a financial cost that you have borne for losing Onesimus, then let me know how much I owe you. I'll pay you for it. And this is from a man who is probably not of considerable means at this point in his life. But he says, you know what? Um, nothing matters more than the spiritual. And it reminds me of um, cases today where I've known of Christians who have been wronged by others financially, for example, because he's talking about a financial loss here. And they basically just written that off and said, you know what? I'm not going to worry about that anymore. That's not a concern to me. I am more concerned about the spiritual because that's much more. If I lose $50 because I helped that person out and I never got it repaid or it cost me that because of that, I'm okay with that. Because the spiritual matters more. That's where the real 
emphasis should be. Um, Jesus talks about that a little bit in the Gospels, where he, in essence, says, if someone wrongs you, okay. You're going to have things that are done to you that are unfairly, financially and otherwise. And, and that's just part of being a Christian and setting the right example. The other thing here in verse 19, he says, I'm writing with my own hand. I will repay. Paul takes personal responsibility for the situation. So two points on that, and I kind of referenced this as I was reading it here. One, what kind of lessons can we learn from this? And two, I would argue that Paul is very bold at this point in approaching Philemon. Thoughts on that? Because uh, uh, if I'm Philemon, I'm, you, a person has to be careful in Philemon's position not to get defensive over what Paul just said. Because what he said there, he says in verse 19, not to mention to you that you owe me even your own self besides. That your spiritual um, well-being is in part because of my, my efforts. Thoughts on that? Someone had their hand up. Uh, Brother Jonathan. Yes, thank, thank you for seeing that, Michael. I was just going to point out that this is the principle that is expressed in uh, Romans 15, verse 27. And just to be clear, I'm talking about this, this debt that Philemon owes to Paul because Paul had um, perhaps evidently converted him. The same thing is in Romans 15. You see that the uh, Gentiles were making this contribution. They're trying to help the Jews back in Jerusalem. And it says um, that they were pleased to do this. Verse 27, yes, they were pleased to do so, and they are indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their spiritual things, so by the Jews sending out these preachers and, um, and doing that, um, they are indebted to minister them also in material things. So Paul says, he, he, he doesn't lean on this too heavily, but he says, don't forget, you, you owe me one. <laughs> Excellent. That's a great passage, Romans 15, that Jonathan brings up. Uh, it's interesting, you, you know, in, and, I, and I didn't bother to look at how it was worded in the original language, but in the English language, when we say not to mention, that's translated to mention. <laughs> yeah. You know, not that I'm going to say it, but I'm going to say it. Um, sometimes but is the fancy comma uh, afterwards. You know, I've done this, this, and this, but there's the... There's the real crux of the argument. And that's okay. And so Paul's making this argument here that Jonathan very nicely points out here. Uh, the other thing here as an early application is the actions of a particular saint can have the impact of refreshing the spirit of another saint. We talked about that a little bit last week, so we won't belabor that point too much. But uh, we made a list just throwing out ideas, we made a list of about three to five things, simple things that people can do to um, refresh other Christians. Um, like, we are, we are Febreze for one another. You know? We refresh. That's what Febreze does, right? We, we are refreshers of one another. Alright, you're feeling a little bit down? Let me come spray you. 
That's just where my mind went to. Okay. All right. Verses 21 through 22 a says, Having confidence, there's Paul, having confidence in your obedience. <laughs> parentheses. I sure hope so. <laughs> so I have, I have confidence in your obedience. I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. So here's another thing. In, a, in, a, in first century hospitality, it's different than 21st century hospitality. I may call upon you and say, hey, can you do me a favor? In fact, I had someone just three days ago call me and say, can you? He asked, are you in a favor-granting mood? I thought, well, I'm not sure how, that, how to take that. But I said, sure, why not? And he said, can I come stay with you and Wendy later in July? And, which is a typical way of putting it. Paul says, get a room ready for me because I'm coming to your house. I'm sure hoping that I'm coming to your house. So, but again, things are different in the first century than they are in the 21st century. And, and saying please is probably a good idea today. But he says, having confidence in your obedience, having confidence in your compliance, having confidence that you're going to do what I've been talking to you about now for the past 19 to 20 verses. Um, which brought me to this and kind of a humbling concept or a humbling question is, could the book of Philemon be called the book of Leland? In the sense that Paul writes to me and he says, I'm confident of your obedience as well. Certain days, yeah, I'm confident in myself. Other days, I'm not as confident in myself. And... Paul is here, I don't think he's just writing in a whimsical way. I think he's writing in a real way by saying, I'm confident that you're going to do what's right when it comes to Onesimus, when it comes to this issue that we've been talking about now for the last, you know, 18, 19, 20 verses. Um, the, The question that I think is forced by the text is, why was Paul confident in Philemon's actions? And... The answer, I think, goes back to what we talked about early in our study together today, and that is the motivating factor for Paul was love. The motivating factor for Philemon would have been the love of the brethren. That's the reason he's going to act that way. Paul says, I know, Philemon, how you're going to act because you've been schooled in New Testament Christianity. You understand Colossians chapter 4. You understand um, all the different... You understand Romans chapter 12, for example, where it talks about uh, letting love be without hypocrisy. You understand all those different passages, even though you may not have had access to those passages, I understand. But he said, you understand those concepts. You understand what it means to be of Jesus the way. It means to treat others better than you would even treat yourself. And the last point here on verses 21 and 22 is that Paul had confidence in his hospitable spirit and then... He says in verse 22, through your prayers, I shall be granted to you. Paul sees the importance of prayer. You could go back and uh, just do a study of Paul praying or Paul reverencing prayer. And you see how he is very rooted in it. It's important to him. He relies on it very, very much. 
Thoughts on the first 20 verses, first 22. We've got three verses left to cover, but I wanted to open up and see if anybody has any thoughts on the first 22 verses, what we've covered so far. And I saw a hand, Jonathan. This returns to that, um, what we were saying before about the tactfulness of appealing to somebody. Um, You see that in with a number of scriptures writers that they will perhaps lean on people and, and say difficult things and then have this phrase in there. It's like, but, but I'm convinced and I know that you'll do the right thing. Just as one example of that in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 9, he just said some very um, solemn things about what, what can happen to those who are unfaithful and unbelieving. And he says, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, even though we're speaking in this way. So maybe that's uh, one of the ways we can use our tactfulness and say, we can, we can be very solemn and very convincing and very pointed and say, but, I, you know, I, I trust that you understand what I'm saying here and why I'm saying it, and I trust that you'll do the right thing. Uh, and I love the idea of I trust, I trust that you're going to do what's right. I trust that. And that kind of confidence. And it goes back to where we started, where Bruce used the word very early when we were talking about verses uh, 9, 10, and 11 on the idea of using tact. Uh, and complimenting as well as saying, here's some areas for improvement. If your supervisor comes to you on a routine basis every month or every six months or every whatever and says, here's what you're doing wrong, here's your list of three things you're doing wrong, now do better, and then six months later you get the same treatment, six months later you get the next treatment, you may be looking for some other place to go because that's not encouraging anybody. You want to be able to say, is there anything I'm doing right? You know, hopefully I'm doing something correct uh, and being able to compliment as well as say, okay, here's, here's a, maybe you can trust that I'm trying to help you to be better by making this particular change or, or whatever the case may be. All right, uh, we've got about one minute left here. Let's go ahead and read verses 23 through 25. Then what we're going to do next week, Lord willing, is we'll talk about verses 23 through 25, make the applications. And then I've got a review, a little bit of a different kind of review that I've got for next week. Uh, I'm going to try something. Um, David, Joe, would you do me a favor and just uh, kind of do a real quick count of how many people are in here? Because I need to know how many copies I need of a, of a document. If you would just do that for me. Thank you, David. Let's go ahead and read 23 through 25. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, there, there's that phrase again, in Christ Jesus greets you. As do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. There's a beautiful word there. My fellow workers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. What does the word amen mean, by the way? I didn't didn't put that in our notes for next week. What does the word amen mean? Say again. Yeah. Let it be so. Let it be said. I, it's the idea of agreeing to something. So, um, you know, if someone says amen to that, either on social media or in a service like this, or we sing amen, we're saying we are in agreement with this. It's so be it. Let it be so. And he's saying the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. 
let it be so. Let it be said. Let that all be in agreement there. All right. We are out of time today, which is okay. It'll only take us five minutes to finish up next week, 10 minutes, and then we'll do a review. So if you want to, what's my assignment for next week? Uh, at the very least, glance through Philippians and Colossians and Philemon. Glance through all of the books or read through all of them one more time, and uh, we'll do our best to do a, an adequate review. Appreciate everyone's uh, good help today.